Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Cameron English, Director of Biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health, joined again by my colleague, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, who is our Director of Medicine. Chuck, what's going on? How are you as we uh, approach the, the 4th of July? I'm very happy that it's the 4th of July, and uh, I'm looking forward to some festivities. My my dog is not because she does not like fireworks, so I'll be spending some quality time trying to keep her calm. I saw your uh, your that comment that you made in, in your article recently, and I just laughed because I know that exactly. My dog finds uh, the, the deepest corner of the farthest bathroom away from where he perceives the fireworks to be mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. just hides, just hides, hoping it'll go away. I feel bad for him, you know, but... Uh, I do, and, and and I would feel worse for Juno, except Juno likes to share her despair with everybody. So she <laughs> likes to wander the house and tell everybody she's unhappy. <laughs> That's so good, man. Oh, the the life of a dog owner it's uh, it's an exciting it's experience. Anyways, well, we've got we've got two stories we're going to talk about, and they're both uh, nicotine and tobacco related. So the first is a story Chuck wrote called "Let's Talk About Nicotine," having to do with this proposed policy at the FDA to uh, reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. And then we're going to co- uh, talk about a story I wrote having to do with the FDA's recent uh, ban, or at least proposed ban, on Juul e-cigarettes. So the interesting uh, interesting uh, ideas here, and they're interrelated in a couple of ways. But Chuck, tell us about this first story. Just give us a rundown. What's the idea behind low nicotine cigarettes? Well, the uh, this has been an idea that's been floating around, actually, for some time. Who knew? Um, but the uh, Biden administration announced, I guess, last week, that they were going to open up for comments next year, because it's never to rush on anything here. Um, the FDA was going to look at the possibility of developing a lower nicotine cigarette um, for health purposes. So I was kind of interested in the topic, and that's why I took a little bit deeper dive to see what was going on. So first of all, when they talk about lower nicotine cigarettes, they're not talking about those um, and this will date me, Virginia Slims and other cigarettes that were advertised as low tar and nicotine in the past, which really just had little vent holes in the filters that reduced the uh, amount of nicotine that way. They're talking about actually developing a, a lower nicotine uh, tobacco, which would be used as uh, the basis for making cigarettes. And there's really two groups that they're hoping to impact by doing that. One group, and probably the group that they're more concerned about, are uh, the youngins who are thinking about smoking because they're hoping that a low nicotine tobacco will mean that they will not become addicted. So let's kind of look at that group for a moment. So the first problem when you talk about addiction is the fact that there is really no great um, definition for what uh, constitutes addiction other than it's disruptive of your social life and that it may be bad, that it's bad for your health and knowingly, you can knowingly continue to do that. But that's not really been established for nicotine as much as it's been established for cigarettes. And they are two different products. Nicotine obviously is within uh, tobacco and is the um, chemical within the tobacco that they believe is um, the addictive component. Um, so first problem is 
actually had to define addiction, and that remains a little bit ambiguous. The next problem, which is probably the bigger problem, is that there's no known dose of nicotine that is addictive or not. Um, they've never been able to establish uh, how much that is, and that is, is a scientific problem, and it, it's compounded by the fact that the dose of nicotine that an individual smoker will inhale is really based on their, their lung mechanics, how deeply they inhale um, and for how long they, uh, they keep that breath in. That's what determines the actual dosage. So it, it, it's very unclear that they're going to actually be able to establish any scientifically based standard for saying this is a, a non-addictive dose of nicotine. The second group that they want to address with this are people that are already smoking and get them down on a less harmful level of nicotine at, at what could be described as a maintenance dose. Now, you could probably determine a maintenance dose, and they've done some studies to look at how much nicotine people need. But if you think about people that smoke, um, you can tell from the number of cigarettes that they smoke during the day what their maintenance level is. And that can, that can vary from people that have smoked four or five cigarettes a day to a pack a day to, to more than a pack a day. Um, but the fallacy, the, the problem, the unintended consequence, which they should recognize right away, is that if you develop a lower nicotine cigarette that people want to have more often uh, for maintenance purposes, then you're only multiplying the number of harmful uh, combustion products that they're inhaling. You reduce the nicotine, which has not been shown to have any horrible health problems, and you wind up increasing the amount of carcinogens that they, they're exposed to. So I don't think that um, either reason for developing a, a low nicotine tobacco makes any sense from a public health or from a science perspective. So you talk about, let's go back to this idea of, a, of an addiction threshold for nicotine. So you write, and you're talking about the studies that have been done on this. Um, it is readily apparent that this is at best an approximation, meaning the, the way they establish whatever this dose would be. So are we dealing with an example of math magic here? This is a concept you've discussed in many articles at this point. You've talked about it on the, yes. on the show as well. Are, are we are we doing sort of like, uh, you know, carry the one, there's five unicorns, now there's seven, and like, are we, is that what we're exactly. dealing with? Okay. There's no number that, that exists in the literature at the moment. And it's doubtful, given um, how science can measure these things, that we're going to come up with uh, uh, the absolute number. There's still going to be people that, whatever the, whatever the dose is within the tobacco itself, is going to be immediately modified by, uh, by how that cigarette is inhaled. I mean, you know, I... I'm not a smoker, but I've, I've spent some time with smokers, and they tell me that that, you know, lighten up and that first cigarette in the morning is is great. You know, you take that big inhale, and you hang on to it for a few seconds, and you let it out, and you pour yourself a cup of coffee. Um, so there's no way to determine actually how much um, nicotine is actually being dosed. So it, it's never going to be figured out that way. And that brings up another point that I probably should have mentioned is that there's a 
a large social component to the quote-unquote um, addiction uh, here. There is the having the cigarette with the morning cup of coffee, uh, having uh, a cigarette with uh, the guys or the girls at work on a cigarette break, having a, you know, a, a cigarette after work while you're having a beer. All of those social interactions are also part of the addictive behavior. And so how do you, how do you address that? That's why I think um, when you start talking about vaping and a product like Juul or any of the others, that meets a lot of the social needs that, that are not going to be met by coming up with a low nicotine tobacco. Yeah, it's a very good point. I remember, I, I haven't, I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes in probably a decade now, but I remember when I was smoking, my favorite part of that was waking up early on a Saturday morning when it was cold and foggy outside and pouring myself a giant vat of coffee and whatever <laughs> book I was reading at the time. And I would just sit on my front porch and I would read and I would chain smoke and I would drink my coffee. And it was just the greatest start of a weekend. I just loved it. There was, it's indescribable how much enjoyment I got out of this. So I can say from experience that that is very hard to break. And I think the only reason I was able to do it was because I picked up an electronic cigarette a couple of years later and it was, you know, I was able to get away from all the harmful stuff. So I, I think you make a good point there. There's one other thing I wanted to discuss and th there's these conflicting studies. There are quite a few from what I've looked at that seem to suggest that when you cut the amount of nicotine in a cigarette, a lot of smokers will compensate because they're not getting whatever that, that maintenance dose is that they need. They're not getting that from the low nicotine cigarette. So they smoke, I don't know, it could be three more a day, it could be four more, whatever it is. So in other words, they're offsetting whatever benefit you're trying to achieve by cutting the nicotine. But in contrast, there's been, I think, at least three studies in the last few years that have said, well, there are some smokers who don't compensate in that regard. They don't smoke fewer cigarettes, so that doesn't really do anything, but they're not compensating for the low nicotine dose. So is there is there just a lot of individual variability in, in how smokers behave? It seems to me it might be a lot like weight loss, where you have uh, certain diets that work well for, for some people, for others not so much. Some people may lose more weight on the same diet, um, and it all it probably just comes down to you know, your insulin sensitivity or some genetic component that we're not quite aware of yet. Is that what's going on here with this? Low I, nicotine I think stuff? that that's the case. I mean, if you look at people that smoke cigarettes, you can, you'll find an entire range of uh, smoking habits. Not everybody, you know, gets hooked on cigarettes and smokes three packs a day. There are people that smoke three packs a day. There are people that, as I said, smoke five cigarettes a day. There are people that say, I'm only have three cigarettes a day. So the, the, the threshold um, for addiction is ambiguous. And as a result, what maintenance level <laughs> is necessary also becomes unclear. I, I, I think we're trying to legislate or regulate um, an agricultural product without having any of the real um, pharmacokinetics well understood and it's compounded by the fact that the delivery system um varies from individual to individual and probably uh varies over the course of the day and to, you know there are people that will have a you know a cigarette light a cigarette and have a puff put it down do some work and maybe get one more puff out of it so does that count as its whole cigarette or two puffs i mean we didn't begin to measure any of that <laughs> 
Yeah. Very, very interesting. You, this is another quote from your story. And this is you summing up the issue and the idea of trying to, I I don't know if force is the right word, but maybe sneak these cigarettes into, into the supply that, that people have access to. But you write that uh, putting the toothpaste back in the tube is difficult and we should be wary of solutions that sound good, but make uncertain assumptions. And that seems to be basically what's happening. It's like every Absolutely. Kind of, you know, yeah, when, when, the when the president announces, you know, that we're going to have low nicotine cigarettes to cut down on the addiction to cigarettes, that that that's a great soundbite. But there is no science behind it. And, and, and certainly for this kind of regulation, uh, we'd like some science because we're cert- they're not going to ban tobacco. Pro- prohibition is not working. For a, for a lot of things, and it, you know, if they wanted to, if they wanted to ban tobacco, they could have done that a long time ago. They're just not going to. So these are all various ways to to dance around the edges and um, provide us with the belief that they're they're making big inroads when in fact they're they're not doing very much at all. Don't quote me on this, but I believe both the Master Settlement Agreement from 1998 and the Tobacco Control Act, which is the federal legislation that empowers the FDA to regulate all these tobacco products, I'm pretty sure both of those stipulate that you cannot outlaw tobacco or outlaw cigarettes. I believe that's the case. Okay, yeah. so I think that's why you're seeing these sort of noodling around the edges. You know, well, we'll, you know, we'll change the packaging, and we'll, we'll, you know, what, whatever the thing is, you know, we'll take the, we'll take out some of the nicotine. They're trying basically everything that they're allowed to do within the law, I think. Which, and, and, yeah. and, it, you know, and there's another unintended or even intended consequence in this is that every time they bring regulation forward, um, the lobbyists uh, from both sides get heavily involved. And when the lobbyists gets in, get involved, that results in increased election funding to the to the legislatures that they wish to influence here so it's part of the same dance as long as it's not illegal it's not going to be outlawed then there'll there will be people that the tobacco lobby will support with financial money there will be people that the anti-tobacco forces will support with money too but the the politicians walk away with with money for their elections no matter what they decide before we move on, I, I you you got me thinking. I remember back in the late '90s when I was still a youngin. I remember seeing a, a, a campaign put out by the Truth Initiative, and uh, you know, smoking is bad, and these evil corporations are trying to make people sick, this and that. And then at the very end of the commercial, it says "funded by Philip Morris." <laughs> so I remember as a 12 year old, I was like, "What sense does that make?" You know. And then now looking back, it's like, "Oh yeah, this is a classic case of." rent seeking you have the biggest cigarette companies basically massaging the federal laws that restrict access to tobacco because it allows them to maintain their market share to a certain extent so it's like a compromise <laughs> between well, exactly. the- you know this went on with the with medical payments every year um medicare would threaten to reduce um physician payments so every year um the physicians would lobby for more money and give money to various campaigns to support their their candidates. And every year, the candidates kick the problem down the road for another two years. So it was just every time they brought it up, 
their coffers filled with money and they would just put the problem on hold for another year or two. No, this is, this is no different. Sure. Yeah. It's troubling stuff. I, I, you know, I don't know that there's an answer to that except for a more informed populace, but uh, I don't know. That's a, that's a topic for another podcast and another day, but what, what makes your article very interesting, it's interesting and it's on right, but I think the context that you wrote it in is, is illuminating because the same week the FDA came out and they issued what's called a marketing denial order for Juul e-cigarette products, like the, the entire brand. And this was, this got a lot of people excited and it drove a lot of people nuts because that's the most popular brand in terms of sales. So a lot of ex-smokers rely on these, these Juul devices to stay off of cigarettes. And, uh, there was no data to look at. The FDA doesn't like publish all of the data. As far as I know that these companies submit, I believe that's all private, but they put out a press release and they said, this is why we're doing this. And we're doing it for the children. It's the typical, you know, the typical reason we do anything. It's for the children. Um, but I wrote an article about it because I, I just found it so utterly unconvincing. And, and I don't know if this is cynical of me, but I don't think the, the FDA scientists at the center for tobacco products believe this either. They just can't because there's just so many things that don't make sense, at least to me. So the first thing is that we have good, pretty solid evidence at this point. You have both uh, testimonials from ex-smokers, you have clinical trials that have been done, you have epidemiological studies, and they all seem to point to the fact that e-cigarettes and vaping, they're at least and probably more effective in many cases than nicotine gums, nicotine patches in terms of getting people off of combustible cigarettes. So if I'm a bad guy, I'm an, I'm an evil villain on the show, Captain Planet. You know, if I'm, if I'm just trying to ruin people's lives uh, and I want them to keep smoking, what would I do? Well, I would remove the product that helps them stop smoking. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so now, obviously I don't think the FDA is intentionally doing that, but the end result seems to be the same. So uh, you're the physician here. What, what are your thoughts on, on this overall? Well, again, I, I think that, Nicotine is probably the gateway in in both directions. And then if you can provide uh, nicotine in, in a way uh, that replaces that craving for cigarettes, that's all, all for the best. And as I talk, you know, when we talk, well, I said, mentioned that social component. It's hard to have a social component getting up in the morning and chewing a piece of gum with your, co- with your morning cup of coffee. Um, or popping on your patch. There's, there's no social ability to either of those activities that there are um, to smoking a cigarette. And that's why vaping, which has a, a device <laughs> that you can hold and can look like a cigarette, I think um, have a, a, a better track record in a lot of ways with, with harm reduction. And I, too, am puzzled by why uh, the FDA would do that. Now, they've approved other brands. So whether they, they're they just going to be giving Juul a hard time because they're the market leader um, remains to be seen. And they, they didn't actually, from my reading of what they said, uh, have any scientific concerns about the product being vaped. It was the product that was being leaked out of the cartridges and combusted at the same time. And so I, I don't know whether they're, they're going to go with any of this stuff. And as you point out, they're not releasing any of the data, nor is Juul. 
So we're all kind of left in the dark on this one. Right. Right. I, I'm, uh, what I did find afterwards, because there, there was a um, federal appeals court for the, the DC circuit the day after this happened. Cause I think, I think Jewel and their lawyers were, uh, you know, ahead of the curb and just being prepared for this. Um, because, because they've been, they've been the villain in this discussion for, for probably four years now, at least. Um, but the day after they they filed suit and they got a circuit court to issue a temporary stay against the FDA order. And the basic argument was, well, you know, you have to at least give them a chance to, <laughs> to argue in support of their product and explain what all this evidence that they've gathered for you uh, demonstrates. And what I learned from that is there's 6,000 pages of research, you know, just every possible angle of what the FDA would want to know. So there's clinical data, there's, there's uh, animal carcinogen data, all, all this stuff. So the court basically said, like, we're going to go through this very carefully <laughs> and, and we're going to figure out. So I think there's some good news in that, and it might set a precedent for the rest of the vaping industry in terms of how the FDA is allowed to proceed. So that's potentially some good news. Um, but what I found amusing, and maybe there are other words I would use to describe it off air, but, um, on the one hand, the FDA said, you know, we have some concerns about the inconsistency of the data they put out in terms of, uh, genotoxicity, you know, the ability of these products to damage DNA. And then, as you said, the products leaching, you know, I, presumably that means into the environment or in, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly what the context for that is, um, but in any case, it was funny because we both wrote about a study that was just published about a month ago and that received funding from the FDA that was looking at the possibility that electronic cigarettes boost healthcare costs. And you went through it more surgically and you said, well, here's, you know, the modeling wasn't terrible, but, you know, the assumptions underneath the study were bad. I think you said overall you gave it a D minus. <laughs> so, so all that to say it's funny f from my perspective for them to come out and say, you know, we have concerns about the data and, uh, you know, we just want to make sure this is correct. But on the other hand, they're throwing a lot of money at researchers who are putting out very low grade research. So I find that a little bit, uh, I don't, I don't know what the word is. I, I, it seems like they're crying crocodile tears here. What do you think? It's, it's somewhat disingenuous to, to do that. And, and, and it speaks to, some of the pro some of our regulatory problems we're not giving the regulators clear guidelines as to what we need to be doing in some cases and they they're they're captured like anybody else again it, it's it's i don't think it's any different than the the low nicotine cigarette you know they came out and said jewels off the market and jewel turned around as everyone would expect and got an injunction and that this will go on for two years, but everybody got their headline. And the FDA said, you know, we've taken action, and now, unfortunately, <laughs> it's in the courts. <laughs> Chuck's, a, Chuck's, a, Chuck's a cynic. I like it. It's funny. Um, yeah, it reminds me. I don't know if you've read that the book by Christopher Buckley called Thank You for Smoking. Yes. Okay. Yes. Hilarious book. If you, if you are... Uh, frustrated by the political climate today, I think you'll find this book amusing because it's it's a novel. It's written from the vantage point of a tobacco lobbyist who <laughs> who is sincere in his beliefs, but he hates his job and he knows what he's doing is kind of slimy. And you know, he, he 
puts forward the the yuppie Nuremberg, Nuremberg defense. I was just trying to pay the mortgage <laughs> and trying to sell cigarettes to the world. So I, I, I th- that book's like twenty years old at least. It's it's I think so. I think it's older than that. It's from the mid nineties. It was turned into a movie in the in two thousand five, which is also very very entertaining. But but nonetheless, I think it, it you get to a a really good point, which is that everyone has an incentive in this discussion. Um, everyone claims that it's about public health, but in reality, um, there are other incentives involved here that no one really likes to talk about, which is of course, you know, there's money, there's politics, there's, there's a lot of infighting and there's a lot of overlapping of incentives that are very clearly distorting this, this discussion, which, uh, you know, and, and there's not a, there's not a great way to resolve that. The only thing I can point to is uh, people like me who who say very clearly, you know, I started using an electronic cigarette and now I'm healthier. You know, in my case, I can go to the gym, I can lift heavy weights and it's fine. I can go to my doctor and any any test they do shows that that I'm, I'm healthier than I was when I was a smoker. There's just no denying that. Um, there's a, there's an organization called the, the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association. And they have a they have a page that I encourage people to check out. It's just a testimonials page, but there's 1,347 pages of testimonies, <laughs> and there's 10 per page, so there's over 13,000 people just saying, "I was going to die. I couldn't get off cigarettes. I was going to die. You know, I was. I knew I was. I was. You know, jeopardizing my health. And then I found this product, and it made a difference. So maybe that shouldn't settle the debate, but I need. I think that should be the baseline of our discussion in that. There's, there's clear evidence of benefit here. So if there are other considerations, you know, we don't want kids using nicotine, no matter what the source is. And um, we don't want people to be dual users. You know, we don't want them to use cigarettes and vape. Um, and there's, there's some other variables that we can discuss. But it's, it seems like we're starting with a conclusion, which is that uh, anything containing nicotine is bad. And so with that conclusion in place, we're going to gather whatever data we need in order to fair, you know, validate that conclusion. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I think we get back to um, the way we approach prohibition on anything is once we decided it has to be prohibitive, there's no middle ground. There's no middle way. When we got rid of alcohol, all alcohol was gone. It wasn't, you could have a little wine or, you know, or a, a near beer, all alcohol was gone. Same thing when we dealt with the opioids. There was, you know, there's been a struggle. There's still an ongoing struggle talking about various means of harm reduction in in the opioid community. And it was a long time before they would accept the idea that you could put people on methadone, another addictive substance, but didn't have any of the the associated high with it to use. So I, I don't. I mean, I think this is a, a battle uh, that we've been waging a long time with our our Puritan. <laughs> ethos, you know, that it's all or none. There's no middle ground on prohibition. And the reality is if you really want to move uh, people's behavior, there has to be a lot of middle grounds. Nobody changes overnight. Society certainly doesn't change overnight uh, in terms of things. And that's why um, these all or none approaches are not going to work. Yeah, it's a very good point. If I can just put out a short defense of the Puritans, I feel like they have been just so beat up by everybody <laughs> because the Puritans happily consumed alcohol. You can go go back and read even the 
even the stodgiest of, you know, whatever, because they were in a lot of ways, the, the Puritans, right? Given the name, but they liked alcohol. They liked sex. They weren't, uh, I don't know. I think the, the neo-prohibitionists give the Puritans a run for their money in terms of, in terms of their, their demands for purity. But, but nonetheless, I think. Okay. Well, so I'm going to use the, the Puritans and that puritanical spirit as the, uh, the word, but we're really talking about ideologues. Yeah, sure. That the in reality is the the anti-smoking ideologues cannot see any middle ground. For them, it is all or none. Yeah, and that when it comes to public policy and human behavior, just doesn't work. Never has. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that doesn't mean you do nothing. That just means no. you 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 approach the issue with your eyes open and you try to craft policy. Um, you you do a risk assessment, which is what we do with drugs and, and food and any other product. You just say, okay, well, can we achieve the benefits we want while minimizing the the potential risks? And in this particular case, you know, the, the model it, we should consider is the UK model, where vaping and these products are considered part of tobacco cessation harm reduction. They're not considered an equivalent product. And, and they don't have anywhere near the rates of smoking and, and vaping that we do here in the U.S. Simply because it's framed differently. It's used as a cigarette, a smoking cessation aid. Right. Yeah, I think in some hospitals, actually, you can purchase electronic cigarettes. <laughs> well, that I don't know, but you know we, we have hospitals that have McDonald's, so <laughs> all bets are off. Yeah, I believe it was uh, our our former colleague, uh, Doctor Alex Berezow, who pointed that out that there are some hospitals in England that sell um, certain e-cigarette devices, and they're not marketed. It's not like, hey, this is super cool, kids. It's like it's a very boring medical device that you can buy. You know, just like. Uh, you might buy a multivitamin or an allergy pill at the at the pharmacy or something like that. But in any case, that's that's good. I think that that lays out a good model for us. Um, well, we're gonna we're gonna leave it there. Just a quick rundown of these stories. Thank you, thank you guys always for joining us. If you want to get these stories in your inbox, you just go to our website. It's acsh.org. Go up to the subscribe tab at the top, punch in your email, and you will get uh, the the stories in our dispatch uh, three times a week. And then we collect the most popular ones that you guys read, and then we break them down on this podcast. So when you show up, you want to be informed and, and you have a jumpstart on what we're talking about, that's what you do. But as always, Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. Again, happy 4th of July to you. I have I'm I feel sorry for your dog already, but I hope it works out okay. You too, Cameron. Have a good time. All right, guys. See you next time.